This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Man, I'm looking forward to an exciting day with you today. And if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin, and I would love to meet you. I'd love to share some time uh, getting to know you, hearing your story about what brought you to new life and uh, the things that might be happening in your life. And I'd just love to welcome you. So on behalf of our church, if you haven't already been welcomed, which I'm sure you have, welcome to new life. We are so glad that you're here with us today. And uh, you're going to want to grab a few things, and we're going to jump right in. A few things to kind of get us at the same starting point on this journey. So the first thing is this card that says, Start Here. This is our connection card. You will be using this throughout the day today, so you're going to want to go ahead and grab that. The second thing you want are our teaching notes. They'll tell you where we're going, uh, the Bible verses we're looking at, some of the big ideas and thoughts that I'd love for us to continue to press into uh, today. And we're in part two of this mini-series called Dual Citizenship versus dual citizenship. And I'll I'll press into that in just a minute. Uh, But if you missed last week, it's one of those messages that I would ask you, and I don't do this lightly, and I try not to do this every week, but I would ask you, go back and listen to last week's message. You can hear it on the podcast. If you go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page and watch the video of it. Uh, Or you can go to my Facebook page. If we're not friends yet, let's become friends. And you can be on my Facebook page, and we can watch the video of it together, because it paints a much bigger picture of something that I'm going to try to give you the reason. Reader's Digest version of right now, which if you don't know what the Reader's Digest version is, ask your parents. If your parents don't know what the Reader's Digest version is, have them ask my parents because my parents used to use that phrase all the time. So I'll give you the the Reader's Digest version of where we were last week because it absolutely impacts where we're going this week. So get ready, buckle up. Here's how we started last week. Jesus lived in one of the most highly politically charged eras in human history. And you're thinking right now, no, we live in one of the most highly politically charged eras in human history. Jesus, even more so. Jesus lived in a time when Rome was the superpower, and the Roman superpower was known as empire. the, The Romans were like the ruling power of the day. They oversaw multiple smaller groups. They actually oversaw the Jewish community as well. They were a covering over because they had conquered in conquest and taken over these other people groups. And Jesus grew up in an empire where the phrase about Caesar, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire, went something like this. Caesar is Lord. Sound familiar? Caesar is Lord. And they'd say things like this. Caesar's empire will have no end. And Jesus came along, and these phrases started to come out about Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And of his And it was a different word of his kingdom. There will be no end. And Jesus came along and he talked about a different kingdom than empire. Notice what he says in Mark chapter 115. He says, the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. And then he uses this church word, repent, which basically means change the way you think. Because until we change the way we think, we won't actually change the way we live and experience freedom. We can change our actions for a few minutes, but until we change our thinking on a topic, we won't ultimately have lasting change and lasting freedom. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here. Change your thinking. Reorient your thinking. 
because God has come near and believe the good news. And here's what Jesus said. There are two kingdoms that every one of us lives in. We live in the kingdom of God, and we live in whichever, in terms of the Bible, whichever empire we find ourselves in. Because I said this, every country is some form of empire. The United States is simply its own version of empire. It has certain empire markers, and we live in an empire, and we live in the kingdom. And Jesus says this, these two are not on equal footing. Jesus says, my kingdom is your primary citizenship. And whichever empire you live in is your actual secondary citizenship. We said it this way last week. Jesus invites us as his followers to embrace our primary citizenship in the kingdom of God and then our secondary citizenship in whichever empire we find ourselves in. Because we have dual citizenship, two citizenships. And the choices that we make in the secondary are always out of what we understand about the primary. And Jesus says there's a unifying principle in his kingdom that impacts how we live in the world around us, in our version of empire. Notice what he says. He says, love the Lord your God with all, all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, because that is the first and greatest command. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commands. And what Jesus is saying is that there is a unifying principle in the kingdom of God. That if we simply understand that principle, it's the lens with which we see absolutely everything. That every command, every law flows out of how do I best love God? And how do I best love others? And so we said last week, Jesus invites us to embrace the principle that loving God and loving others has to be our primary allegiance in the kingdom of God. Because it is this big principle that everything else flows through. How do we best love God and love people? It, it goes across goes across family lines. It goes across gender lines. It, it goes across racial lines. It goes across age lines. It goes across orientation lines. It goes across boundary lines and border lines. This principle has to be the thing with which we filter every other thing that we do. And the question for us as Jesus followers simply becomes in every situation, how do I best love God? And how do I best love God? people. And here's what's so great about that. If we can agree that our primary citizenship is in the kingdom, and that in the kingdom, God is asking us to ask this question, how do we best love him, and how do we best love people? Then we can disagree on the answer to that question because we agree that that is the primary question. And we said it like this, we can disagree about how to best love others because we agree that loving others is best. And this is where our country is stuck right now. Because unless we understand our dual citizenship, that we're primary kingdom citizens and secondarily citizens of this country or of this empire, unless we understand that we have two citizenships, we actually have what we know as dual citizenship, which again, I titled the message so clever, so clever. I loved it last week, so I just did it again. I just said part two because you can't get better than what we said last week. 
dual citizenship, two versus dual citizenship, D-U-E-L, which means to fight or fence or attack. And if we don't understand that we are primarily kingdom citizens and secondarily citizens of empire, that we have two citizenships, then we will end up with dual citizenship where we're fighting each other. And don't we see this today in our country? You guys helped me out a lot better last week. Come on, people. You knew where we were going today. If we don't understand that we have primary citizenship in the kingdom and secondary citizenship in this country, then we have a country that begins to fight each other. Because here's what we say. I must defend my version of empire. And my version says this. And someone over here says, I must defend my version of empire. And my empire says this. And we begin fighting each other on topics. And if we cannot If we cannot um, tear someone down based on the topic and logic, we tear them down as a person. We begin to attack them. We begin to fight each other. And, And it is not what God has called us to do. He's called us to look at a topic and say, well, here's the best thing. Based on my age, based on my gender, based on where I was raised and my experience and my ethnicity, I think the best way to love people on this topic is from this vantage point. And then you can come and you can say, well, based on my age and my gender and and my ethnicity and where I was raised, I think the best way to love people is is this way based on my vantage point. But all of a sudden, we can disagree about how to love best love people because we agree that loving people is best. And now we can ask each other, well, tell me why you think that's the best way to love people. And, And you'll say, well, tell me why you think this is the best way to love people. And all of a sudden, we've come back into dialogue. We've come back into unity where we don't have to agree the same thing to learn how to live in unity with one another. And that's a big deal for Jesus' followers. Because Jesus, right before he was crucified, he was praying, and he was, he was in this room, and he was praying out loud, partially, I think, because he, he needed his followers to hear the prayer that he was praying to God the Father. And notice what he says. He says, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, May they also be in us. And the they he's referring to is us, this community of faith. May they be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave to me, that they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you in me so that, and here's the part I want you to underline or circle or put your emoticon next to it, whatever you have to do, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Because when Jesus' followers are brought to unity, not that we agree the same thing, but that we can live in unity with each other, then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you love me. This is so important because to the extent that Jesus' followers get this right, We can live in unity with one another even when we disagree. And we can disagree about how to best love people because we agree that loving people is best. To the extent that we get it right, we show the world that God is real, that God exists, because only God can pull people from so many different cultures and races uh, and socioeconomic backgrounds, genders and perspectives. Only God could bring so many diverse people into the same place. I love a picture that Pastor Ron showed me recently. It was two Priuses in our parking lot parked right next to each other, 
and one, I'm not going to give you the specifics, but one had a very strongly worded Democratic bumper sticker on it. And the next one, right next to it, had a very strongly worded Republican bumper sticker next to it. Two priests, only in Sonoma County. I love that about our church. I love it. The Republicans and Democrats can come together on Priuses. That is very important. I would not want a church full of only Democrats. I would not want a church full of only Republicans. I would not want a church full of only Libertarians because it's in our diversity that we show the world what it looks like to live in unity and intention. Yeah. Because, because, listen, this is what's happening all over our country right now. Churches are planning in, saying we are a, a, a Democrat church. We are a Republican church. We are a church that won't even talk about what's going on in the world today. That's the third one. Because we don't want to press any buttons. And so we, we, we hunker in and we bunker in and we say the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we can't be part of what's going on out there. That's not what God called Jesus' followers to. He called us to be a unique mixture of people who can disagree about how to best love people because we agree that loving people is best. And all of that is just a prelude to the message I'm preaching today. (laughs) Today I want to talk about what is quite possibly the greatest single humanitarian crisis in our world. I want to talk about the refugee crisis but I don't, want to, I don't want to talk about it through political lenses. I want to talk about the refugee crisis through a kingdom lens, primarily. What does it look like to best love people as a way of loving God? And then secondarily, you can decide as, as a citizen of this country how to vote based on how you think is best to love people. But before I do that, I just, want to, I just want to paint a picture of what this humanitarian crisis looks like in our world right now. According to um, a combined study with World Vision and the Willow Creek Association, 65 million people are currently globally displaced. These aren't numbers in your program, but you might want to write this down on your teaching notes. 65 million people. That represents one out of every 113 people in the world being displaced. And this refugee crisis has generational impact. I want to think just about children for a minute. Children who are victims of this refugee crisis are growing up with no education, which means there's going to be an educational crisis coming in our world in the next generation. Children in this crisis are losing their childhood because of fear. Fear of not knowing. And I want you, just as we talk about this, put your, put your daughter, your son, your niece, your nephew, your grandchild, just picture them. Because children right now are growing up not knowing where they're going to sleep tonight. Growing up not knowing what they're going to eat. Growing up not knowing if they're going to be sexually assaulted Because when you get into these large camps, these resettlement camps, sexual assault is becoming more and more rampant. And children's sexuality is being ripped from them. Sex trafficking is going up because children are being left vulnerable in camps. 
This is a major humanitarian crisis. Let's talk Syria for a minute because Syria's hit the news. Um, and, and, and listen, this might have just come up for you in the last number of months as, as political parties have been bringing it to the forefront. That's okay. You should not feel bad if you haven't known about this, but this didn't just start three months ago. This has been a long time in the making. And on some level, I'm glad. I'm glad that our political parties are at odds about this because it's bringing it to the forefront of a church community. And this is the right place to have this conversation. But let's talk about Syria. In Syria, there are 11 million Syrians, half the population that has been uprooted by a civil war. It's hard to picture 11 million people, so let me give you some context. That would be like all of LA and all of San Francisco being displaced tomorrow. And, and it has hit the, the forefront of our, of our social consciousness, or at least of our Facebook feed, because of an executive order that was, was signed about a month ago, uh, that's commonly been called a travel ban. I'll just, we'll call it the executive order, but I just want to give you some context for what this is. And let me give you the key points of this executive order, because I read the whole thing, and I encouraged you last week, before you say anything, read the actual documents. Read it. Don't read two paragraphs in your newsfeed about what your, your certain leaning says. Read both sides. And read the document itself. So here are the key points from the document. It's a 90-day suspension of all visas in seven predominantly Muslim countries. It's a suspension of U.S. refugee admissions program for 120 days. And it's an indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. Now, I promised you last week that I'm not going to be political, and I'm not. I'm just trying to give you some context for this conversation. And it's sparking all kinds of fighting in our country, all kinds of fighting we can do better because we are primarily kingdom citizens and secondarily citizens of this country, which means that we have a unique kingdom voice to not have to stand completely here or completely here. I said last week, I love some of the things that Republicans stand for, and I love some of the things Democrats stand for, and I really enjoy some of the things Libertarians stand for. The minute I start to stand with them, they say, hey, I'm a libertarian. You can't stand with me. That's a libertarian joke, but don't worry about it. That's okay. Not a lot of libertarians in the room, or if you are, you're just offended. That's cool. Here's why I want to say we don't have to stand in one place or the other, because I want to tell you the Bible actually doesn't stand on one side or the other. It's not an either or when it comes to foreigners, when it comes to refugees. It's actually a both and. And I want to talk about that because I want to be honest to the Bible, to what God says. I want to look at what God says about foreigners and how to engage with foreigners and the perspective we should have. I want to talk about what the Bible says about borders and how we should engage with borders and what the Bible says about that. So let's just do a quick survey of what God says about how to engage with foreigners in a both-and world. Exodus 23 says this, Do not oppress. That word oppress literally means unfairly judge. Do not unfairly judge a foreigner. Why? Because you yourselves were foreigners. You were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them because the foreigner residing among you must be treated as a native born. Love them as yourself. 
for you were foreigners in Egypt. God says, I am the Lord your God. Now, I want to be clear. Most often when we see this phrase foreigner or stranger in the Old Testament of the Bible, it's speaking about someone from a different country, not just a stranger who happened on your property one day. It's someone coming from outside of your country's boundaries into the country. And usually it's a reference in the Old Testament to someone who has converted to Judaism because it was God speaking to Jewish people in a Jewish community. So usually foreigners were people who had come in, they converted to Judaism, they started following God, and they were welcomed into the community. Not always, but usually. But here's something that's interesting in both of these passages. In both of the passages, the author ties the people back into their own story. Did you catch that? Do not misuse, mistreat, abuse the foreigner. Why? Because you yourselves were once foreigners. Isn't that interesting? He says, look at people with empathy, because it wasn't so long ago that you yourself were a foreigner. And could God say the same thing to us? Um, here's something fun about my family. You might not know, because we haven't talked about my genealogy all that much, but we have a direct connection to Governor William Bradford, who was the first governor of the Plymouth Colonies, which means that I am 14th generation U.S. born, which basically means that I was on the wrong side of every sort of, like, bad thing that our country did. Like, I'll just, just say, I got ties to General Lee, I got ties to taking lands, I got ties to everything. It's not good. Let's just call it what it is. 14th generation U.S. born. And we've actually got it well documented with stories coming all the way down. And my mom and I were having a conversation about this. And she said, Kevin, let me send you one of the documents we have. And I want to read it to you. Uh, it's from John Corey from 1638. It says this, John Corey came with three brothers, Thomas, William, and Giles from Scotland in about 1638. Giles was the only man killed in the witchcraft era. He was, yeah, this is good. He was crushed between two millstones because he would not admit his wife was a witch. That'll preach in a marriage series. Yeah. You know what I realized? It was only 14 generations ago that I myself was a foreigner in the land. And it was in 1638 that it was my family who was murdered because they were outside of the religious norm. Because we were, we were witches. Well, apparently. Yeah. I, I don't actually think we were, but it's back there. That we were the minority. We were the one that everyone was suspicious of in the witchcraft era. Who's a witch? He's a witch. She's a witch. And when most husbands would say, yeah, my wife's a witch. Get rid of her. I'll find another. My relative would not confess his wife to be a witch, at least in public. (laughs) And he was crushed between two millstones because of it. It was not so long ago that I myself was a foreigner. And my family's been in this country longer than almost anyone in the room, unless you've got native ancestry. So could God be saying to us, when you look outside of your national borders, look at it through the lens of the reality that you yourself were once foreigners in the land. I love what Hebrews says as we, oh, let's throw this up on the board. 
God invites us to see foreigners through the lens of our shared humanity. Of our shared humanity. Because how can you love someone if you do not see them as a human, made in the image of God, worthy of respect? I love what Hebrews says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. That word hospitality literally means to welcome someone in, to care for them, to give them lodging. He says, who knows that by welcoming someone in, giving them lodging, caring for them, you might not yourself be entertaining angels. Now, depending on where you line up politically, you will love this part of the message. Now we're going to switch over to the other part of the message. Here's what God says about borders. Because remember, it's not either or. It's actually both and. Notice um, there's a book in the Bible that I've taught through. A couple summers ago, I taught through this book, a book called Nehemiah. Nehemiah has as its major theme, rebuilding a wall. Any connection? Rebuilding, you're like, we hate Nehemiah, tearing out of your Bible. No, listen, listen. Rebuilding a wall. Why? Largely to protect the citizens of Jerusalem from outside forces bent on destruction. That's why they built the wall. To protect the citizens from outside forces bent on destruction. Notice what Nehemiah says. He says to the people, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And we find out later that there are neighboring countries who are bent on the destruction of Israel who are trying to get in, who try to thwart the process of the wall, who try to tear the wall down in order to cause harm to Jerusalem. Now, fast forward 500 years. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome. Remember the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire is very much in power, and Paul's writing a letter to the church in Rome. And here's what he says about this government, an unjust government, a government that takes by force. He says... The one authority, for the one in authority, that's the government, the one in authority is God's servant for your good, the citizen of that country. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants. They're agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. So the government... In any empire, has a dual responsibility to learn how to live at peace with outside forces and to protect its citizens from outside threats. And it is a heavy weight and a heavy tension, which is why we're told pray, pray for your leaders because they bear a heavy responsibility. And we're not told, pray for your leaders when they're in your political party and slam them when they're not. We're told, pray for their wisdom. Pray for them because they hold a big responsibility. Now, that does not mean that we do not speak up when things go out of bounds. This is where we are kingdom citizens first and empire citizens second. 
But we pray so that when we speak, our language is flavored with grace and truth, and we can actually be heard. I'm so sad. It seems like Christians are forfeiting our voice of actual change in order to have a bumper sticker or make a meme. You know what I mean? I I made this joke. I shouldn't even say it, but I'm going to because my filters are down right now. I thought, how funny, if some of you didn't like my sermon, uh, if, if you, uh, you took a picture of Pastor Ron's face, put a red hat on him, and said, make new life great again. Like, that would be hilarious. I almost made it myself just to leak it out, because I thought that'd be so funny. Or hashtag, not my pastor. I thought that would be so funny to me. But listen, Christian, listen, Jesus followers, kingdom citizens, let's not forfeit our kingdom voice for clever, or funny, or bumper sticker. Let's not forfeit our kingdom voice. God called us to be unifiers who speak his truth in love. It's not an easy tension. It's not. So what do we do? Because we actually aren't in political power. We are Jesus followers in kingdom. What do we do when it comes to foreigners? Primarily, primarily, we find our story in their story. That's our first responsibility. Find our story in their story. Have empathy first. Listen, guys, we cannot look at the refugee crisis and say, well, that's their problem. Not as Jesus followers who believe that God's image is on people who believe that people are infinitely valuable, who believe that God weeps over the suffering of his children. We must first look with eyes of empathy. And what's the biggest thing that keeps us from empathy? It's actually not hatred. I've had people ask me, well, what do you think is the opposite of love? And when it comes to um, a global perspective, I don't believe the opposite of love is hate. I believe the opposite of love is fear. It's fear. What if, what if, what if? Jesus speaks directly to fear. So I want to close by talking about that and then giving us some practical thoughts on how to live this out. Jesus talks about fear. He says, don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. These are basic human needs. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. You could add, don't worry about your physical safety at the random chance that you could be, you could be, you could be God. Because the pagans, those who have no God, they run after these things. Safety, protection, provision. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But, and here it is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And he's not saying Don't use wisdom. Wisdom says buckle up. That's wisdom. Worry, fear, says keep my kid in a five-point harness till he's 15. (laughs) Wisdom. Wisdom says create borders. Give inroads and outroads. Fear says don't let anyone in. You see the difference? Let's acknowledge Let's acknowledge that love 
never in the Bible, love never is a guarantee of safety. It's just not. Don't we know that to be true? When you love someone deeply, isn't that the person who can hurt you most fully? Love is not a guarantee of safety, but love is a call of the kingdom. The reason that we engage in scary love is because the kingdom of God that we live in is an eternal kingdom. And even if it's risky here, we know where we're going forever. God doesn't promise that love will keep us safe. He promises us that love is the right way to live and points the world back to God. A number of years ago, a movie came out that was based on a book from the 60s called Beyond Gates of Splendor. It tells the story of Jim Elliott, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, along with four other families who were missionaries to the Warani people in the 50s and 60s. And the husbands went off, I think there were five of these men, went off in a plane to go make first contact with the Warani people. And they were immediately murdered by the people who they were sent to love. They didn't even make it in. They were killed. A number of years later, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, one of these, these murdered men, went in to live with the Warani people, the very people who had killed her husband, to love them, to serve them, to be with them. And through that choice... One person, then two people, then families, then the village became followers of Jesus. And I was at a missionary conference in 2005, and I got on the elevator. We stopped at the floor below me, and who got on the elevator? Elizabeth Elliot got on the elevator with me. And it was like, oh my gosh. She was in her 80s at this point, a small, frail woman. And I introduced myself because, like, how often does this happen? So I stopped staring at the buttons like we all do, and I actually looked at the person. I said, oh my gosh, my name's Kevin Finkbeiner. She was like, okay. I said, and you're Elizabeth Elliot. She was like, in fact, I am. <laughs> and we talked briefly. I mean, you know, beep, beep, beep. I'm trying to get all the information I can as we're going down. And I was so inspired by this quiet, old, unassuming at this point, frail woman. She died in 2015, but the kingdom that she lived for in her life is the kingdom that she lives in today. And the life of love that she gave is an example to me. And you can look through Christian history. The people who we, who we aspire to be, the people who we hold up, they're the ones who said, I'm not going to sacrifice love for safety. I'm going to live love even though it's dangerous because I know the kingdom I'm living for and if I die, I know the kingdom I'll be living in. So what do we do? Well, three things. One, we pray. We pray. Pray for global conflicts to be resolved. Pray for wisdom of our government leaders. We pray for safety for the vulnerable in conflict zones. We pray. The second thing we can do is act locally. I've put a link on your notes 
to the Rescue Committee of Oakland, the International Rescue Committee in Oakland, IRC. I've looked into them. Uh, They seem like a really good organization. They're working with refugees. Uh, They have excellent financial accountability. They're a good organization. If you want to serve locally, they're one of the better ones I've found locally to serve. They're serving refugees. You could go and serve. You could hop online and figure out how to partner with them to actually make a change. I was talking to my friend Ashley, uh, and she used to work with refugee resettlement. And I said to her, Are there, uh, how do we know? Like, how can we partner? And she said, just look around. Look around. Look in most of the service industries in Sonoma County, and you will find immigrants. Chances are you will find refugees. And get to know people. Ask stories. Form friendships. And that's how we can partner locally. Another, the third thing we can do is we can give to organizations who are partnering with refugees globally. I suggest World Vision, although there are a ton of great ones. Preemptive Love Coalition is one, um, uh, I believe, but, but World Vision is the one that I would suggest because I've looked into their financials. I, I know that the money goes where the money says it's going to go. Here's something interesting. World Vision came out in this big conference about the global refugee crisis, and they said this. They said, most refugees don't actually want to come to America. Most refugees want conflicts to end where they're from and go back home. They have hopes of going home. And so World Vision is actually working in large part to help refugees get back home right now and working with children. So maybe partner with that. Maybe give to World Vision financially. That might be a way that we can partner globally even as we live locally. And the fourth is this. Join Jesus' kingdom movement by becoming a Christian today. Listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the kingdom you're living for is too small and it's temporary. 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and it's gone because you're gone. Jesus invites you into a bigger kingdom, a global kingdom, a kingdom that goes beyond borders and goes outside of time, an eternal kingdom. He's inviting us to become his followers, to walk with him as kingdom citizens first and citizens of country second. And if you're not yet a Jesus follower, I want to invite you. Become a follower of Jesus today. When you do, he brings you into his family. You're no longer an orphan, but you're a part of God's family, adopted in. You become part of a community called the church. You become part of a global family and a global movement. Why not jump in? God has made a way. In communion, we remember that God made the way for us to come back to him, that we could not get to God, so God got to us. He's inviting you. Come, experience my forgiveness, experience my love, join my family, become part of this global kingdom. And if you're ready to do that, I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Uh, and maybe as I'm praying for some of you, it's time to think, what do I want to do? How do I want to get involved? What is my place in this crisis? So would you join me as we pray? I'm asking once again, God, for the miracle that you do within your people. A miracle of partnership, of humility. I'm asking once again, God, for a miracle uh, that our world has not seen recently, where we can come in with different perspectives and different opinions and not vilify each other. I'm asking for unity within this community.
And I'm asking God that you would give us a vision to have empathy for and see those who are suffering and hurting, both locally and globally. God, would you use us, your church, to be both a unifying voice and a voice that walks in the tension of this global climate. And if you're here today and you're ready to become a follower of Jesus, you can, you can repeat this simple prayer after me and you can invite God to be your leader and the savior of your life. You can whisper these words, say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me and that you're inviting me into your family and into your kingdom. And I want to walk with you. So would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to walk in partnership with you and this community from this day forward? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.